Uh, gracious God, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would be with us, that you would help us become more aware of who you are and how you are at work in our lives and in our world. Lord, we pray that you would reshape us, remake us, and help us to follow you better. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. In 1973, Gary Kittle wrote the first popular operating system for personal computers named CPM. To be clear, since not all of you had electrical engineering as a background, um, the operating system is what happens behind the scenes in your computer or in your phone. It allows the programs to talk to each other, the programs to talk to the hardware, and most importantly, the programs talk to you. But it's all kind of behind the scenes a little bit. It, it's the, the water that the fish is swimming in, as it were. According to writer Philip Fioroni, IBM approached Kittle in 1980 about developing the operating system for IBM PCs. But Kittle snubbed IBM officials at a crucial meeting. According to the author Paul Carroll, the day IBM came calling, Kittle chose to fly his new airplane. The frustrated IBM executives turned instead to a guy named Bill Gates, founder of a small software company at the time called Microsoft, and his operating system called MS-DOS. Fourteen years later, Bill Gates was worth more than $8 billion, never mind that that's now closer to $125 billion. Of Kittle, who has now since died, Carol writes, he was a smart guy who didn't realize how big the operating system market would become. Somehow, Kittle seemed to have settled for a small view of the space. And because of that, he missed out on something so much larger. Before we move on, I'll add this story to this story and analogy that it's also helpful for us to think about how operating systems then are used now, because it's the operating system that keeps you on a Macintosh or a PC or an iPhone or an Android or whatever else. You can download that software in this system, but not in that one, so you should stay with us. Which is why, if you want to make the switch from one system to another, it's going to take some money, it's going to take some work. You have to want it, it has to be worth it, or you're just going to stay where you are. I mean, I could share with you some news about an amazing new device or system or phone or computer that's about to come out. That, that would be news, not that amazing, but it would be news, but that doesn't mean that you would believe it or accept it or let it change you. Let alone would you move into that new system because it comes with a cost, because it's hard work to change from one system to another. And even after that happens, we also recognize that that would continue to take work as we continue to have to make those other... Now you have to buy a new cord. Now you have... And then that other thing you have in your car, that's not going to work. There's a whole bunch of other changes that happen after you buy the new whatever it is you buy. Of course, this isn't just true of devices and phones. It's true of the bigger parts of life as well, even maybe faith. With all that in mind, let's now get back to our series, because today we come to the end of this series where we've been looking at how our gospel 
has in some ways become too small. But because of that, then also our ideas of eternity and salvation and even God have become too small. And the problem with all of that is that it makes even then our faith and our lives too small as well. For too long, too many of us have turned the whole thing into sort of just a transaction where we do something and then God has to do something. So we say a prayer, we receive Jesus, we come to Christ, we decide to have a personal relationship with Jesus, we live a good life, and then God has to give us what we want, our ticket to heaven, which is later and longer and somewhere else far away. But notice that that small gospel, it's, it's all about us. It's all up to us. It's all our decision. It's all our doing. It's all our effort. It's all our choice. And it's all for us, which means that it's not really news, and it's not even all that good. What's more, this seems to then leave out some big pieces of the faith, like discipleship or sanctification or even service, not to mention grace and mercy and love. Those ones kind of get put to the side as well. Is it any wonder then that we as Christians aren't very good at living out the gospel? And is it any wonder that the gospel then doesn't seem to have much impact on our neighbors or our community or our world, except insofar as they could have it too? Of course, the more insidious part of this small gospel problem is that it distorts and it domesticates God. It minimizes and marginalizes Jesus' actual message. It shrinks and stifles our faith such that it can be ignored, trivialized, and overlooked. And it removes any need we have for following or faithfulness or discipleship. You see, in trying to simplify everything, we end up removing all of the force and all of the power and all of the effect. But what if we could go the other way? What if we could expand our view of God? What if we could extend our view of eternity? What if we could enter deeper and wider and, and better into the gospel? Maybe then our faith and our discipleship would start to make sense. Maybe then we would be changed. So with all of that as background and review, let's finally turn in our Bibles to the gospel of John chapter 3, verse 1. John 3, verse 1. We're going to go from 1 to 21. We're going to stop a little bit before what the bulletin tells you because sometimes sermons change. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, 
and do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Amen. There's a lot going on in this passage, but let's start by looking at two very different stories that Jesus and Nicodemus seem to be living in and telling. Because I think that Jesus is inviting Nicodemus to live into Jesus' gospel story, and I think Nicodemus is struggling getting out of his own story, the story he's been in for a long time. He's having trouble changing his operating system, as it were. And, and we see that old system, that old story, in some of the clues that our author John gives us right at the beginning of the passage. First, we are told that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. This was a, a sect of the Jewish religious elite that worked to follow the letter of the law and more. The way you get saved is by perfect, unwavering faithfulness. And so you are constantly on a treadmill of righteousness, working to do whatever is required to keep God happy. This was a big piece of the story that Nicodemus was living in. This was the water he was swimming in. The way you keep God happy is by doing good things, by not living outside of the bounds. That's what faithfulness, that's what discipleship should look like. What's more... We get another piece of the story. He's also a member of the ruling Jewish council. He's, he's someone. These were 70-ish judges that made the big decisions for the whole of the Jewish people. And obviously that comes with some status. Nicodemus has a little bit of an image to, to uphold here, which might also be why we're not very surprised to find Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. I mean, sure, sure, he had some questions, maybe even some interest. Maybe something deeper was going on in his soul, but it certainly wouldn't look good for Nicodemus to be seen with this guy in the daylight. What, what would people say? This is another part of the story that Nicodemus seems to be living in. But there's one more part that's important for us to see, and that is that Nicodemus seems to view God as being distant, God as being foreign, God as being unapproachable. 
And we see this as he talks to Jesus. We, we know that you have come from God, because clearly God isn't right here with us. Before we're overly critical, let's also recognize that we also don't just know Nicodemus, we are Nicodemus. We believe, whether we admit to it or not, that our good deeds do save us, or at least appease God. We believe that we are somebody, and, and we don't want our faith messing up that image too much. And we sometimes also believe that God isn't very personal or very present. We fall into the same story that Nicodemus finds himself in. We live that story out too often as well, which then is why we need to contrast that story to the one that Jesus is telling, to the good news that Jesus is bringing, because the way Jesus tells it, it's not our works but God's love that saves. It, it's not our status that matters, it's the Son's sacrifice that matters. It's not that God is distant because God has come near. You see, the good news that Jesus tells Nicodemus about is all here and now and real. It's all done. It's already happened. That's why it's news. And all that's left is then how do we live in and through and around that new news? The light has come. Do you live in it? Do you live with eyes wide open, or do you choose to keep your eyes shut and then kind of stub your toe on, all of the things that you can't see. The light is here. The choice is, do we live that news out or not? But, but notice, the news part has happened. God has come near. God has sacrificed for us. God does love us. All that's left at this point is learning how to live that new news. How do we learn to live in that kind of a kingdom? How do we learn to live in the light? How do we learn to live and grow and mature as newborn Christians? Or maybe the question is this, how do we learn to live in eternity now? But even here, we may be getting some of our story a little bit backwards. I mean, what if heaven and hell aren't really what we think at all? It's interesting how Jesus describes heaven in this passage. He describes it in, in, in sort of a, a light, but not the most comfortable of lights. In fact, if we don't learn to live in this new light, our first impulse, our first instinct might even be to avoid the light. To try and put this another way, what if heaven isn't just the place we go to when we die, but what if it's also how we learn to live in God's presence, redeemed and remade and recreated? What if the real challenge isn't getting into heaven when we die? What if the real challenge is learning how to live in heaven even now? Learn to live in this new story that God is trying to tell. Theologian Dallas Willard says it this way, I am thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who, in his considered opinion, can stand it. But standing it may prove to be a more difficult matter than those who take their view of heaven from popular movies or popular preaching may think. The fires in heaven may be hotter than those in the other place. The fires in heaven may be hotter than those in the other place. Rob Bell makes this point differently but brilliantly. 
He writes, imagine being a racist in heaven on earth, sitting down at the great feast and realizing that you're sitting next to them, those people, the ones you've despised for years. Your racist attitude would simply not survive. Those flames in heaven would be hot. In fact, it's a common, though much ignored, image in the Bible that we need to be refined, which is a process that can be a little unpleasant, I'm told. Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about how the quality of our work will be tested with fire, and while we may suffer loss, yet we will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flame. We will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flame. Bell goes on, Jesus calls disciples in order to teach us how to be and what to be. His intention is for us to be growing progressively in generosity, forgiveness, honesty, courage, truth-telling, and responsibility, so that as these take over our lives, we are taking part more and more in life in the age to come now, which starts to help us have a bigger picture of what we're talking about when we talk about discipleship? What if discipleship is really just learning how to live in heaven now, not earning our ticket to heaven later? But wait, if we've mixed up our view of heaven, might that also be true of, of the other place? And might that also inform our picture of discipleship? Now, to be clear, the Bible does tell us that there is a hell. It will be later. There are going to be some people in it. That being said, it's also important for us to realize that the word hell is barely mentioned in the Bible at all anywhere. It is not easy to find, and it does not mean what you think most of the time. For most of the people living in those times, hell was a much more present reality than the kind of picture that we have. For most of the people living back then, hell was a very present reality here and now. It wasn't a threat about a place later. And if we think about it, this is what we see too if we're willing. Because of course you can visit places and people who are literally in hell on earth right now. When we think about people who have experienced the horrific, the tragic, the heartrending, when we think about places of abject evil, subjugation, poverty, warfare, when we remember the atrocities that have been and are being committed, when we see fellow human beings, children, people made in the image of God, hungry or hurting or hiding, we remember that hell isn't just some abstract later. It's also a very present reality right here and right now. And if we're being real honest, we may also have seen little bits of that in us. I mean, you can talk about the hell that we see on the news, you can talk about the hell as a place out there somewhere far away, but, but if we have to be real honest, I don't know about you, I've seen little bits of hell stuck in me too. 
Those times when I know what I shouldn't say. I, well, I know what I could say to actually hurt you just a bit. I mean, I'm just, I know I shouldn't say it. And then I do. Those times that I, I choose not to see and not to care because I know I don't want to respond. I, I know that's going to be painful to see, and, I, and, I, and I'll feel the need to enter into that situation if I see it, so I just won't look. I just won't allow myself to care. Those times that I'm trapped by things that I say I don't want to do, that I know I shouldn't do, and then I cling to it anyway. Those times that I fall short of who God has made me to be. In those moments, I think we all taste the bitterness and reality of hell in us. Because those are the moments we choose to be separate from God. We turn away from God and we hide. We put distance between us and God. The light is just too bright. And so we move toward the darkness. I find it remarkably telling that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden tree and their first response, their first instinct is to hide is to distance themselves from God. And yet, in that story, in this story, in our story, the good news is that God comes near, that God pursues even the prodigals, that God closes that distance. Even when we were dead, even when we were disobedient, even when we were depraved, the good news is that God continually rescues, continually heals, continually pursues, continually includes. Which is why then discipleship is how we learn to live in that new reality. Discipleship is how we learn to choose to not live in hell anymore. Discipleship is how we learn to help others out of those same situations, not just later, after death, but today, right here, right now. This person is hurting, they're suffering, they're struggling, they are in hell. How do I enter into that situation to help them out? Because the reality is God entered into mine and got me out. Which brings us all the way back to Nicodemus, because he's still struggling. With which reality is he going to choose to live in? His old story or Jesus' gospel story? And it's important to see Nicodemus' story isn't a bad story. In fact, most of us would be pretty, we'd be pretty good if that was our story. Look, look at Nicodemus here for a second. He is faithful. He is religious. He is good. He's a good guy. What's more, let's notice he believes that Jesus is from God. He says that right at the beginning. He hears Jesus and has made some kind of decision to come to Jesus, and then he actually comes to Jesus. For most people, he checks all the boxes. Now, he is coming at night, and that's weird, but, but other than that, he, I mean, he's here. He has come to Jesus. He has he's said that Jesus comes from God, and he's a good guy. What more does he need? Most of us would conclude he's doing pretty well, better than us. But, but in light of our passage, he's having trouble with those first few steps in this new story. He's still holding on to kind of a, a smaller picture 
of discipleship. Not willing to fully let go of his old story. He's, he's holding back. He's on the fence. He won't allow himself to be changed. He won't allow himself to follow. And in this, he's having trouble living in Jesus' gospel story. He's so used to having to earn God's distant love. And he's so used to having to keep up his own status and image and worth that he's having trouble seeing, let alone living in, the kingdom of God here and now. He is seeing discipleship as a requirement instead of a new way to come to God now, experience life in God now, live that gospel story out now. Because, of course, being born again is one thing, but notice where all the life then gets lived. The majority of the living and striving and working and growing and maturing happens after we are born, which is what discipleship is. It's how we come to know God better, eternal life. It's how we learn to live in the kingdom of God better right now. It's how we learn to live with God today. That's what discipleship is. It's the invitation of faith. That we can live this kind of life right now. That we can come to know the God who has come to us right now. That we can recognize that God has done all the work already. And discipleship is how we learn to live in that new reality all around us. Now, before we land this sermon and this series, I do need to give you some good news about what happens to Nicodemus. We don't always get to hear the end of the story, but at the end of the Gospel of John, we find Nicodemus again. Uh, this time in the daylight, out in the open, this time in a sacrificial, costly way as one who has been changed, this time presumably as more of a mature disciple. Jesus has just gone to the cross to show God's love for the world, and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come to get the body for burial. And we find Nicodemus there with Joseph carrying 75 pounds of aloes and perfumes so that they can lay his body to rest. Nicodemus seems to be living a different story than the story he was laying in our chapter. He seems to be living a story where he's been changed. And of course, in the next three days, he's going to be changed even more. That being said, the story goes something like this. The good news, which always starts with God, by the way, is that God loves us. God loves the world. And despite the distance that we put between us and God, through our bad deeds and our good deeds at times, God still moves towards us. God still loves us. God is still present with us. God still saves. God has saved. That's all done. That's all accomplished. That's the news. What's left is how do we learn to live in that new kingdom reality here and now? Will we learn to live with God who is still seeking and still pursuing and still loving us and our world? Will we continue to be restored and remade and redeemed? 
Are we willing to join God in God's work? That's discipleship. And that's how we live God's gospel story. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your good news that it's not all up to us, because we probably would have messed that up, but that it's all up to You. Lord, we thank You that You have moved near. Despite the distance that we create, despite the ways that we run away from You, despite the parts inside of us that don't want to have anything to do with You at all, You are a God who seeks, and You are a God who finds because you are a God who loves. We pray that we would know that we have been found. We pray that we would know that you are here. We pray that we would then live out these new truths, this news, all throughout our lives, that we might follow you better, that we might become better disciples, that we might know you now and always. Lord, we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.